Well, good morning, IBC family. Um, I want to invite you to turn to your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. And while you're turning to 1 Peter chapter 2, just to give you kind of a quick backdrop of where we've come from. Well, first of all, I want to say this. I love the fact that we get to do baptisms. We have more baptisms coming. I know we're definitely doing baptisms on Easter. So if if that is something that you are that the Lord is actually prompting you to do, then we would love to come alongside you and, and help you better understand what this is and what this is all about. Uh, after all, baptism isn't something that God says, do this and I'll love you more. Baptism is actually a public declaration that you've already received the full extent of God's love for you. And now you get to, in a public way, in a public form of proclamation, you go to actually say, like, hey, this is what God is doing inwardly and how he's transforming my life forever. And so we get to celebrate with that. It is really going, this is, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I, it is uh, really a, an invitation for us as a church because here's the deal, brothers and sisters, it's, it's incredible how this happens so often. When people have made a public prop proclamation of their faith through the sacrament of baptism, it, is, it seems like there is a spiritual attack like none other on their lives. I mean, there's nothing like saying, I'm a follower of Jesus, and then Satan just basically throws a, a stick in someone's spokes and totally derails them. And it's just like, man, I'm a terrible, lousy follower of Christ. But yet, all of us are apart from God's grace. And so we, this morning, get to celebrate God's grace. We get to celebrate his grace in the lives of our young people, and we would love to continue to celebrate his grace in your life if that is how the Lord is leading you. So my encouragement to all of us is to be in prayer for these young people, that God would continue to, again, drive them to the cross, because, again, following Jesus isn't about our perfection. It's about his perfection. It's not about our ability to obey perfectly. It's about Christ's ability who has already obeyed on our behalf. And we just say, thank you, God. Thank you for doing for me what I could not do for myself. Speaking of prayer, however, I, uh, I don't know all the details, and I'm not reading into it, and I don't want you to read into it, but I do want to say this, that Doc Bodet, his, uh, he was here this morning, and now he's uh, going to go see his father, Lyle Bodet, who is usually one of the first ones here uh, while the worship team is practicing. He's not with us this morning because there seem to be some things going on, and um, we don't know all the details of that, but we don't need to, as a church family, know all the details. What we do need to do is when we are prompted to pray, we pray. Because God knows everything that is happening. And so I want to just take a moment right now to pray for Lyle Bodette. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, right now we know that you are the God of all comfort, the God of all peace. You are the God that is all-powerful. You are the God that is all-knowing. Father, you are in sovereign control over your creation. And as human beings who have been created in your image, Father, you know every single detail about us. You know the hairs on our head. You know every cell and how it's functioning. You know everything about us. And you know what exactly what's going on in Lyle's life right now. And I just pray that, Father, whatever uh, is at stake here, that, Father, that you, by your gracious hand, Father, that you would be glorified in all that transpires from this time forward. 
I pray for Doc. I pray for all the family, Lord. I just pray that, God, you would minister to their hearts. May they not be unnecessarily anxious, but, Father, that they would represent you in such a way that there is a calm peace and a collectedness that only your spirit can provide in their lives. We know that Lyle's been a dear, faithful brother in our church family, and, Father, we just we love him. We know that you love him even more. And I pray that, Father, that you would, whatever is complicating, giving him complications, Father, that you would just ease those things, that you would take away those things because, God, you can do anything. There is not anything that you cannot do. So we trust you in that way, and we say thank you for your sovereign hand. I pray for our time here this morning, Lord, as we seek to listen to you through your word. Father, we're inundated by many voices and many messages and many things in life that uh, are all telling us this is what you ought to value, this is what you ought to think, this is who you are. And yet, Father, our greatest need every single moment of our life is to hear your voice and hear you proclaim this is who you are. This is what I have done for you. This is what life is all about. This is how I've called you to live. So, Father, to that end, may we come to this time in our worship with receptive hearts. May we be very eager and willing to receive all that you have for us. May we not come in having it all figured out, but may we come in with humble hearts saying, God, today I need you. And may we receive accordingly by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. We are going to, in our sermon time this morning, be covering 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 11, all the way through 25. However, I'm only going to read the first couple of verses right now, and I'll read the rest of the passage a little bit later in my message. Uh, Verses 11 and 12 really kind of set the stage, they kind of set the tone for everything that happens all the way up into the middle part of chapter 4. And so this is really kind of, we're going to really hone in on some things that Peter emphasizes in these two verses, and then this week as well as the next couple weeks, we're going to draw further and further application of what these two verses really emphasize. So starting in verse 11, read along with me, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Earlier this week, I watched a movie. Most of the time, I can't watch movies twice because once I've seen one, I'm kind of good with that. There are some movies I can watch over and over again, however. There's the Bourne series. I can watch that over and over again. But there's also real life stories. I love watching movies based on real events. One such movie I just watched the other day was The Miracle on Ice. Anybody ever seen that one? I love that movie. Man, it made me want to get it back on the ice again and play hockey. 
But uh, Miracle, it's really all about the 1980 hockey team, right? Uh, again, the Olympics are here. Uh, 20 years prior, the Russians have, have kind of dominated the hockey circuit, and no one stood a chance to the Russian hockey team. They just obliterated everybody. In fact, even the NHL team at that time sent the best of the best from the NHL uh, the league. They went in there and got crumbled. I mean, they just got totally crushed by the Russian team. And so now they are here into the 1980 Olympics, and they're like, you know what? We're just trying not to be embarrassed. That was the goal initially. We're just trying not to be embarrassed in this 1980 Olympics, especially, especially with the hockey team. And so they hired a coach, but this coach said, you know what? Uh, you know the story. I'm hopefully not as a spoiler here for you, but he actually was a part of one of the hockey Olympic hockey teams that got canceled when there was kind of a there was a uh, kind of a walkout, so to speak, a resistance to some of the things going on, and so he was not able to play in the Olympics that he would qualified for. And so now he's the coach of the Olympic team, and he's like, you know what? We have to have a completely different strategy. You see, we come in, we bring in all our best of the best NHL players, and they are just these one-man shows. We have to completely have a reorientation of thinking or thought or perspective on how we play the game, how we view ourselves. And of course, everybody's like, what are you talking about? And instead of taking NHL players, you know what he does? He takes a bunch of college players. Young 19, 20, 21-year-olds going like, what are these guys? They they don't have near the experience. This Russian team's been playing for 15, 20 years together solid. He says, like, we're going to reorient reorient their thoughts and perspective on this game. And really the question that the coach was constantly bringing up was this, who do you play for? You see, at first, he would ask that question, and he'd say, like, what's your name? My name is so-and-so. And And who do you play for? I play for this college, or I play for this college. Ultimately, what he was exposing was, I'm basically playing for me. I'm here to kind of make a name for myself. And see, the coach understood, like, we're never going to win, especially we're never going to beat the Russians if if we come in with that kind of perspective. And so long story short, he starts asking this question. He's breaking them down physically and mentally so that they might come to this conclusion that when they finally said, when he asked the question, who do you play for? He says, we play for the United States of America. In other words, there's no I in team. It's not about you anymore. This is a mindset that, think, that thinks like a team instead of an individual, that you're playing for something greater than yourselves. And as, of course, as a result, the greatest upset in hockey history took place. They always came from behind every single game, and they finally had the, the, the semifinals. They met up with the Russian team. They already got crushed before as kind of a preliminary round, and here they are again. And he says, nine times out of ten, they will probably beat you, but not this time. And you know what? They won. Complete upset, upset that no one expected. And how in the world did that happen? There's probably a lot of things that are true to why they were able to win, but in the end, it was a reorientation of perspective. He completely said, we need to think and therefore play differently than we've ever done before. I think that Peter is doing that in his letter in the first epistle of Peter. 
He is trying or he is seeking and he's appealing to the hearts of fellow believers, fellow uh, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ to have a reorientation of thinking. In other words, it's not just a reorientation because they've all been floundering around, but he's trying to bring us back into a proper or rights perspective. He's trying to help us understand as a Christian who has been saved by God's grace and and obviously not deserving of any of God's grace and mercy in your life, he says, this is how you live. This is how you think. This is how we navigate this journey of life. As we even talked about last week, right? This is who you are. And because this is who you are, now Peter goes into some practical application. Because of this, is, this is who you are, this is therefore how you ought to live. This is how you ought to conduct your life. And he really kind of highlights three main emphasis in these, three, in these two verses that I just read for us this morning. He talks about a perspective to align to. He talks about a battle to fight. And he talks about a lifestyle to maintain. Let's unpack that for us so we have a better understanding and how it applies to our lives. First of all, Peter highlights a perspective to align to. We've already talked about this before, so we won't belabor this point too much, but it's important to bring up over and over again because, again, we sometimes forget, right? He says, you are sojourners and exiles. Depending on the translation you're reading, obviously, uh, it's, you, you might have other words in there like aliens or, or strangers or your pilgrims. But the point he's getting at is this, you are not home, it's like what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. He says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the reminder here, as we've already discussed, is that Christians live in this world, but their loyalty is to Christ and his kingdom. We live in this world, but our loyalty is to Christ and his kingdom. We do not belong to this world, but we live alongside those who do. We are pilgrims who are traveling through a foreign country, so to speak, staying a while, but never with the intention of staying permanently. Howard Hendricks actually said it very well when he said, most people think that they're in the land of the living heading toward the land of the dead. (laughs) But the truth is, We're actually in the land of the dying heading toward the land of the living. The point being, thinking rightly about who you are as sons and daughters of God's family and whose kingdom you belong to first and foremost ought to have a a radical influence in how we go about living our lives. It ought to have a radical influence in how we go about making the decisions that we do, the things we say yes and no to, the things that we value and prioritize, the things that we spend our time and money on. All these things are radically influenced because we are children of a kingdom whose God is our King, whose Savior is Jesus. It's not just a compartmentalized idea or thought that we have. It's holistic. It transforms every aspect of our being. And, of course, there's kind of an implicit warning in this, this clarification of our identity, Because we need to be especially aware of the the propensity of our old nature, our our fallen nature to become entangled in 
what we might call worldly pursuits. By worldly, I mean what Paul means in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, when he says, don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world. Now, why would Paul and also Peter feel the need to exhort us in this way? And most plainly, the reason why they would say this and remind us of these truths in this way is because we are extremely vulnerable to copying the behavior and the customs of this world. We are what the hymn writer says, we are prone to wander, right? Prone to leave the God that we claim to love. So the reminder for us, for us Christians, for followers of Jesus, is to keep living in such a way that makes it obvious you live for a different kingdom. You live for another kingdom, and you live in your highest aim in life is to make much of Jesus through your life. In other words, don't get caught up in anything that might inhibit your pursuit of God and his kingdom. Isn't that what Hebrews 12 verse 1 tells us, right? After the long chapter, Hebrews 11, all these men and women of faith that have gone before us, this is, therefore, laying aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we run this race called life? How do we navigate as pilgrims who are here temporarily but not home permanently? Well, the obvious one is we have to rid the sin because sin always keeps us from running faithfully. But also this weight includes anything else that might stand in the way of our pursuit of Christ in his kingdom. You see that there's a lot of things in life, especially in a Western context, that isn't sinful in and of itself. But it is a weight that potentially slows our growth or pursuit of Christ. Things that might be considered amoral. They may be perfectly fine. They just may not be fine for you because we're a bunch of idol factories. We love to make idols. We're easily drawn to giving our affections and our pursuits and our allegiance to so many other things that God ultimately deserves. So we see ultimately that Peter says, again, here's a perspective to align to. You're a sojourner. You're an alien. You're a pilgrim. You are not yet home. So therefore, if we are to run this race with endurance, how do we do that? How do we navigate this our lives as a sojourn or a pilgrim. Well, Peter gives us two things. One is, in a sense, a defensive approach as well as he gives us an offensive approach. The defensive approach is this. We have a battle to fight. We must realize that there is a battle or a war to engage in seriously. Listen to what he says. He says, abstain from the passions of the flesh or you know, these fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. This word for abstain means to resist continually. It means to resist continually. Continually resist what? All the things, all the ways our fallen nature seeks to manifest itself, to poke its ugly head up, right? 
Peter isn't just referring to what we might oftentimes refer to, you know, when we read that word, like if your translation says fleshly lust, we think of lust as always kind of a sexual immorality. It includes that, but it's not limited to that. When Peter's talking about the passions of the flesh or these fleshly lusts, he's talking about any way the flesh or our fallen nature manifests itself. Paul actually gives us a fuller description in Galatians chapter 5 when he says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. In other words, this is not even an exhaustive list. There's all kinds of ways that our fallen nature will manifests itself. And Peter is saying, abstain from these. Resist continually. Because the fact is, though we have been given a new heart, and now we have the ability to now do good as God defines good, we will still struggle with our old nature, our fallen nature. Because we, right now, we don't have that new body that is, that is promised to be uncorruptible and undefiled. The fact that Peter even uses the, word, the term passions or, or these desires or lusts means that our old nature is actually and genuinely drawn to these things, right? So in reality, when you think about the fruit of the flesh, these are things that we like genuinely, We're called to engage in a battle against things that our old nature really likes, that our old nature is really drawn to. And again, because our fallen nature hasn't yet been fully destroyed once and for all, we will always have a battle on our hand. And sometimes, I don't think I need to convince any of you, but sometimes this battle, these passions, these desires are intense. They're intense. Perhaps some of you right now know exactly what I'm talking about. Perhaps you even came in this morning and you're like, man, I am just tired of the same pit I keep falling into, the same trap, the same stuff, the same junk, the same sin. And for the life of me, I cannot seem to experience any freedom whatsoever. It seems as though there's an intense stronghold on my life. I think there's good news, however, because as many times as you have potentially failed in your life, understand this. The fact that God has commanded us to abstain or to resist continually from fleshly passions tells us that we as saints of God have the ability to do so by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Let me just say that again. The fact that we are commanded to do something, even though it seems impossible from our perspective or vantage point, tells us that God believes you can by his enabling grace, by his 
indwelling spirit in your life. In other words, God does not command us to do something that he doesn't also empower us or equip us with the ability to follow through and obey. He always equips us with the ability to obey. This is what Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. Let me just translate that in a kind of common day vernacular. There is no sin under the sun that every single one of us are not potentially vulnerable to. In other words, every single person on the face of the earth has the ability to sin in all kinds of ways. You know, sometimes we have this idea because we kind of go, well, how could that person do that? You have equal capability of doing that. And to think that you're not already tells me that you're on the verge of royally screwing up. There is no temptation that is not overtaking, that is not common to every single person. But here's the promise. God is faithful Isn't that amazing? God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You see, brothers and sisters, this is a a vital, this is a, a crucial perspective to cling to and to not part ways with in our battle against sin. Because if you think that there is no way to overcome a sinful passion in your life, then you almost will always be overcome by it. In other words, if you're just kind of giving up going, I've never been able to do this, there's no way I'm going to see victory in this or experience victory in this, then guess what? You will most likely be overcome by it. But if you do believe that God is faithful and that he always provides a way to be free from sin and anything that entangles us, then that perspective instills hope and renewed determination to fight our battle against sin by God's grace. Which raises another important strategy, mind you. The strategy is this. We must fight spiritual battles with spiritual weapons. You have to fight spiritual battles with spiritual weapons. Your fight against sin is a spiritual one. Yet oftentimes we approach our fight against sin with our own mustered up self-determination only to wonder why do I keep failing over and over again? Because you have to employ spiritual weapons for spiritual battles. And that's why we're oftentimes defeated because we don't grab the right instrument the right weapon, the right tool. The question is, then what spiritual weapons do we have afforded to us? Let me just list off a few of these, not because you don't know them, but because we always need a helpful reminder of what is available to us. First of all, as I've already said, first and foremost, we have the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Do you realize that as saints of God, The Spirit of Christ indwells you. The same Spirit that resurrected Jesus from the dead is the same Spirit that indwells you. 
The same spirit that gave Jesus all power and authority to to fulfill his ministry perfectly is the same spirit that indwells you. So if you were to ask the question, can I ever experience victory in whatever this might be, the answer is an absolute and definitive yes and amen. It's not a matter of if. It's just a matter of being filled with Christ. What does Paul say in Ephesians, right? He says, don't be, don't be drunk with wine, but instead be consumed by the Spirit. We need a constant filling of the Spirit, not because He comes and goes, but because we need to be, our lives need to be consumed by His influence in our lives. The second thing afforded to us is the Word of God, the Scriptures, Howard Hendricks said it well. He said, sin will keep you from this book, but this book will keep you from sin. In other words, we oftentimes wonder, why do I keep floundering, falling into the same thing? And the question I have to constantly come back to is, tell me about how you spend your time with God through his word. I could probably do more. We could always probably do more, right? (laughs) But oftentimes for us, We've been starving spiritually so much that we wonder why we have no energy to fight spiritual battles. Just like we need physical sustenance for our bodies to live, we need spiritual sustenance for our spiritual lives to grow and to live and to thrive. We need to feed spiritually, and the way we do so primarily is on the Word of God. It's the Word of God that transforms our life. It's the Word of God that the Spirit of God uses to change us internally. Our actions always flow by a heart that is transformed by the grace of God. So time with God through His Word cannot be optional. It is vital. It's the difference between freedom and slavery. A third thing afforded to us is prayer. Again, much like the Word of God, we could always say, I could probably pray more. Do you realize that what, in, I would say, a significant part of what enabled Jesus to fulfill his ministry perfectly was the fact that he spent tons and tons and tons of time with his Father in prayer? The Gospel of Mark actually says he, he, he escaped to the wilderness often. Why? Just to be alone? No, to be with his father, to commune with his father, to talk with his father, to know, well, Father, what do you want me to do? Even he was dependent upon listening to his father so that he might fulfill his ministry perfectly and therefore be the perfect lamb, the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. It was this communion with his father through a ministry and a lifestyle of prayer that enabled him to endure faithfully to the end. Is it any different for us? No. Consumed by the spirit, feeding on the word of God, communing with our father through prayer. But fourth and quickly, encouragement of fellow saints of God. I've already said this before, I won't belabor this point, but here's the deal. There's no such thing as the Christian life lived in isolation of the Christian church. We as a church are saved by God, by his grace, 
And we belong to one another. We need one another. We need the encouragement and the strengthening of one another. We need others in our life who are bearing one another's burdens, rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. There is no such thing as the Christian faith that is lived in isolation of the Christian church. One of the reasons why we would promote life groups isn't because we're trying to get some friends in your life. That kind of a secondary result. But the point of a life group is that people would come alongside you, encourage you, and strengthen you to take the exhortation on a typical Sunday morning and and move into a point of application. What does this mean for your life? How can I hold you accountable? How can I pray for you in this? How can you thrive so that you might be a healthy follower of Jesus Christ? We need one another. And so God has not given us a command and said, good luck with that. He says, here's the expectation I have for you and here's all the provisions I provide for you. Now we just got to take and utilize them, right? You and I are engaged in a spiritual bather, whether we like it or not, whether we realize it or not. The question for you and I is always, are we overcoming or are we being overcome? Are we overcoming or are we being overcome? Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. That's the defense, but here's the offense. The offense is a lifestyle to maintain. A lifestyle to maintain. Paul, as Peter says this, keep your conduct or, or your behavior among the Gentiles honorable. This word for honorable means to be, to be excellent. It refers to behavior that is seen as lovely, uh, as fine, as gracious, uh, as winsome, as noble. In short, what Peter is referring to here is this. Keep your lives or keep your conduct in such a way that the world takes notice that your life is, what Paul would say, that it is lived in, in a way that is above reproach that is attractive to the world. Now, attractive, I don't mean that like, wow, everybody's going to be drawn to Jesus because they watch my life. No, because some people will think of it as a stench. Jesus was perfect. Some loved him and some hated him. So living your life in an honorable way doesn't mean that everyone's going to be attracted, but by attraction, I mean without fault. Live your life or conduct your lives in such a way that you are living without fault. You remember Daniel, right? Daniel, the prophet Daniel, most of his life spent in exile, living in a foreign land. He prayed three times a day in front of his window. All these other rulers that he ruled alongside with hated him because he was kind of had the favor of the king by God's grace. They could not find any fault. They had to manufacture some crazy manipulative law just to try to take him out. That's what Peter's referring to here. Live your lives in an honorable, in an excellent way where people can look at your life and say, I can't bring anything against them. I don't like it. I don't even agree maybe necessarily, but they are incredible people. And there's something attractive about the way that they love people so well. Now, what, the question is why, is, why does this matter so much to God? 
Why does it matter that we live our lives in an honorable, in a kind of a winsome manner where people cannot find fault? Well, for one, I mean, God commands it. That's the obvious one, right? Uh, and I think a second one that follows easily on the heels of that is it's, it, it's kind of hip, a hypocritical way of life when you profess one thing to be true but live your life in contradiction to what you profess to be true. So the Bible calls that hypocrisy or being two-faced, and those who are living hypocritical lives as the scripture would say, do not inherit the kingdom of God. But the third reason that Peter emphasizes in our text here this morning, the reason why it matters that we live in a, in a way that is honorable or commendable to the world is because we represent Jesus Christ best when we live this way. We represent Jesus Christ most profoundly when we live and conduct ourselves in this way. What does he say? Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The point that Peter is making here is that living godly lives is the single most effective way a Christian can make the gospel of Jesus both attractable and believable. William Barclay says it this way, the strongest missionary force in the world today is a Christian life lived in front of people. One uh, 19th century Scottish preacher, Alexander McLaren, said it well when he said, the world takes its notions of God, most of all, from the people who say that they belong to God's family. They read us a great deal more than they read the Bible. They only hear about Jesus by what they see in us. The fact is, every Christian is an advertisement for Christianity. Every Christian is an advertisement to who Jesus is. By our lives, we are either commending the value of our faith to others, or we are making others think less of it. Which is why Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 16, let your, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Now what might others conclude about, the question is, what might others conclude about the Christian faith by watching your life? Because they are watching People are watching. People are making conclusions, noting observations. They are watching, and the question is, what conclusion do they make by watching your life? Who would they say Jesus is by watching your life? Well, what does this conduct look like practically? I mean, we can talk about it in a principle form, but Peter actually goes on to give us some specific examples about what an honorable life, a life of honorable conduct looks like. And in chapter 3, all the way through the middle of chapter 4, Peter gives us these examples, which will be the basis of our sermons for the next few weeks. But this morning, we'll talk about the first two examples in which he says we must submit to ruling authorities and we must submit to our employers. 
These two examples kind of kind of go together, so we're going to kind of lump them together. But look along with me in verses uh, 13 through 25 of First Peter here. First Peter 2, 13 and following. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as free people who are live as people who are free, but not using your freedom as a cover for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin or beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in the body of the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you, have been str- for you are, were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." Now, this morning, I'm not going to take the time to exhaustively flesh out because there's a lot of commentary here and there's much that could be said, and it's 11.15. But if you want a more thorough uh, explanation of what, it, what Peter, especially when we, in regards to Christian submission to governing authorities, you can actually listen to my sermon on May 17th, 2020, as a much more fleshed out understanding of what that means. But let me just highlight a few points. And again, I'm lumping these together because whether it be a government or an employer, it all has kind of the same parallel emphasis. First of all, to be subject or to submit means to obey. That's what, that's what Peter's referring to. That's what Paul refers to in Romans chapter 13. To be subject or to submit means to obey, meaning that Christians are called to obey all laws and to respect all authorities, even employers who are jerks. There's probably a whole sermon right there. <laughs> of course, the question is, because... We uh, revolutionary Americans who have a, live in a country based on revolution want to get to this point. Well, when is it time to say enough is enough? Which is always a debatable. It's worse than sometimes than Calvinism versus Arminianism. When is it time to say, nope, not going to do it? And of course, there's 
incredible men and women of God on both sides of the issue, and it's kind of a gray area. And of course, this last couple of years has already proven that to be so. But let me just say this very distinctly. We are commanded really to disobey either governing authorities or even uh, uh, employers for two reasons. When the government or employer tells you to do something that God prohibits, we ought to part ways. We are also commanded to disobey when the government or employer inhibits you from doing something that God commands. Those two foundational principles are what guide our our, uh, kind of assessment on when to say yes and when to say no. The question is, why? Why does God command us? Why should we submit or therefore obey to governing authorities or to employers that you might consider less than worthy of it? Or that might actually even make laws and decrees that you don't even agree with? Peter emphasizes this point three different times in the passage we just read. Summarized in this way, we do so for the Lord's sake. We obey for the Lord's sake. In other words, we don't obey because you always agree with the laws of the land or the rules in your place of employment. We don't always obey because you like the laws of the land or because you have any affection towards that. You don't obey because the governing body or authorities or employees are ungodly. I mean, look at Peter and Paul, right? They were writing these letters in the context of an incredibly cruel dictator called Nero. Nero was the epitome of evil. And yet it's in that context that both Paul and Peter say, submit to every governing authority. You obey because this is what Jesus modeled to us as his followers. What does he also say in verse 21? Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So Christians submit also to to earthly and, and governing authorities and even to unfair employers, ultimately to honor God's sovereign authority over everyone and everything. Again, when you look at all kind of the the whole council of Scripture, you see another common or predominant theme rising to the surface, and that is this that God is the one who both establishes and removes kings and rulers and governing authorities. By the way, that means Putin is only fulfilling the wishes of God, not because God is ordaining evil. Not because he's ordaining any atrocities, but he is actually a puppet. He thinks he's in power and in control, but he's not. And he's only fulfilling God's ultimate redemptive purposes in redeeming the human race. What Satan intends for evil, God is actually using for good. And brothers and sisters, can I just say to you, That as much as I hate what's going on, I'm also praying in this way, God, save a ton of people through this. 
Why does God withhold his gracious hand? Why does he need to just come in and say, you know, enough is enough. Let's just complete this thing right once and for all because he's saving people. And there are many more people that he's calling to himself. And so I'm praying to that end and I pray that you pray to that end. That through this, that the church explodes. What Satan is trying to use and to, do, to steal and kill and destroy, God is actually going, watch what I'm doing through this. I'm causing revival through persecution. May we pray to that end. One final question I do want to kind of ask and stir the pot with is this. I don't think it's difficult to understand what Peter is saying or what Paul says in Romans 13. That's not difficult for us to understand. Then the question is, then why such a struggle at times? And I know this is going to stir the pot, but that's okay. I think the, one of the reasons why we struggle to submit as we are called to is because we are too entitled to our rights. We're too entitled to our rights. And yet, what does Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God do, but surrendered his rights in order that many might be saved? You know, Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, I could call down legions of angels righteously, and this would all be over. And he doesn't. No, he surrendered his rights so that many might be saved. And then Peter says, now I want you to surrender your rights, to live your life in such a way that people cannot help but take notice. You see, living as a Christian is not about trying to uphold Scripture and the Constitution on the same level. Living as a Christian means our highest allegiance is Christ and Him crucified. That we are citizens of heaven first and only. And yes, we have a civil responsibility. I'm not saying that. Yes, I'm not obliterating the Constitution. I'm super grateful for that. But I am saying this. That first and foremost, as sojourners, as exiles, as pilgrims who are not yet home, we live for a different value system, a different system of priorities, a different kingdom who has a different king. That is our highest aim. And so if I could contrast it in this way, it would be like this. If we were more focused about the advancement of the gospel as we are with the protection of our rights, I wonder how many people might come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Or stated differently, if we prayed as much as we complained <laughs> about the struggle of our rights, how might our prayer life about and for people we even disagree with change? I can't, think, I can't help but think that Daniel, who's living in Babylon, 
who the people of Israel could not even, like, how in the world is God redeeming and, and accomplishing his redemptive purposes through these people? And he lived most of his life in exile. And yet at the same time, he prayed three times a day, not that God, God, please change your mind. God, take out these people. No, he prayed for them. He prayed for the betterment of these pagan or Gentile nations. In other words, as Jeremiah the prophet would say, his best interest was wrapped up in their best interest. His favor was wrapped up in their favor. And so my encouragement and exhortation for us as Christians who are pilgrims, who live for a different kingdom would be this. May we utilize and spend our energy and our time praying for our leaders, praying for our employers, praying for our teachers, praying for our family members, praying for your church leaders. Pray for us. Pray for them. Because not only in your prayer does it change our mind and our hearts, but it changes yours. And that is how we intend to glorify God. And that is how the kingdom of God is put on full display. Let me close in this way. I read this in one of my commentaries this past week. American missionaries Herb and Ruth Klingen and their young son were prisoners of the Japanese for, for three years. They're a, a prison, they were in a prison camp in the Philippines during World War II, and in Herb's diary, he explains all the atrocities and the, and the things that they struggled through and how they were, many of the captors were tortured and, and beaten and murdered and starved to death. And the prisoners particularly hated the, the, the commandant named Kanishi, Kanishi. Herb described especially this kind of diabolical plan that Kanishi kind of manufactured in which what he did was he actually gave them unhusked rice. He gave them a lot of it. He's like, I'm going to give you as much unhusked rice as possible. But he knew very well that they could not eat that because in a matter of hours, they would bleed to death from intestinal bleeding. And so they had to spend their time trying to take off the husk of the the rice kernel in order to eat it. But they they spent more calories taken off the husk than the actual calories provided by the rice itself. In other words, it was a death sentence. It was a cruel death sentence. Kanishi knew that. And the prisoners knew that. And it was only because around that exact same time in February 1945, Allied forces liberated the prison camp and it prevented that commandant to to carry out what he intended to do. Years later, the Kleans learned that Kanishi had been found working as a groundskeeper at a, a golf course in Manila. And he was put on trial for his war crimes and he was hanged. But before his execution, he professed conversion to Christianity by saying he had been deeply affected by the testimony of Christian missionaries he had persecuted. The point is, your life matters. The eternal life of others, by God's grace, is contingent to how you conduct your life. A godly life can lead others to eternal life. Let your your light shine before others 
so much in a way that they see your good works and they cannot help to eventually give glory to your Father who is in, who is in heaven. I think of the Klingons, the missionaries, and I think of like how they are going to spend eternity with Kanishi. The one who was a brutal dictator who wanted nothing good for them, and now they get to spend eternity with God. That's God's grace in action. That God would save any sinner for his glory. And you know what, brothers and sisters? He wants to use you. He wants to put his goodness on display through you. He wants the world to know who he is through you. So may we see ourselves as pilgrims. Pilgrims progress, right? Pilgrims progressing through this thing called life. Abstaining and waging war against this fight of sin. But conducting our lives in such a way that the world cannot help but take notice. May that be our intention. May that be our prayer. May that be our all-consuming focus until he comes.